0: Uh, what is taking place in this this little prophecy? So Daniel chapter 9 and um at verse 24, I'm gonna read this from the ESV. We read: Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness. To seal both the vision and the prophet and to anoint the most holy place. And I think the RV and the RSV have somewhat similar language as well. So you notice here that the 70 weeks prophecy which was about the coming of Messiah was about sealing the vision but also the prophet and to anoint the most holy place. Now, the word there to seal is an interesting idea of fixing a seal upon something. Um, this is authenticating or, or sealing an impression upon a cylinder. Um, and this was to happen after 70 weeks. Now, that's a slightly different subject, but we're just going to plug you into it for a moment. So, this is the, the section that we've read a little bit of expanded period, but just where he points out here in verse 25. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the prince shall be seven weeks and three score and two weeks. And then he talks about the building of the city again. Um, But after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, not for himself. Uh, The people of the prince shall come and destroy the city and the sanctuary. And it's going to come at the end thereof is going to be with a flood and war and desolations are determined. So when we look at this, um, just to kind of give you a, a brief idea, we have seven weeks, and these, of course, are, as Brother Thomas calls them, heptades or or year periods. So we have these seven uh, seven year periods, which is 49 years, and then we have a, uh, a total of... Um, Uh, another 62 weeks or 434 years and it begins from the going forth to um, of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem which was around 456 BC and this was to seal up the vision and of course the prophet so this was the period that would run so around the year 33 they would be looking for this to expire Now, if you come in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2, we find a people that at this point in time are anticipating this to take place. So in Luke chapter 2 and at verse 25, there is a great expectation for Messiah based on this prophecy that we've just read. We read there, behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. The same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit is upon him. Now, along with him, there is somebody else. There is Anna, a prophetess, so she also has the Holy Spirit, uh, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. And she coming in, verse 38, that instant gave thanks likewise unto the Lord and spake of him to all that looked for redemption in Jerusalem. So here's two people who are looking for, they are expecting the promise, as the word means there, the consolation, the paraclesis, the coming near or calling alongside, the refreshment, the comfort of the redemption. And that, of course, is the idea of being delivered or liberated or redeemed or released. So that's what we, we see in here, and, and that's what they were looking for. Now, I want you to come over to John chapter 6. We're not going to look at, you know, the whole life of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we just want to pick out a couple of points. Um, We're going to look at how he was born and how he was created. Um, But I want you to go to John chapter 6, and we want to come in at verse 27. This is what the Lord says. Labor not for meat which perishes, but for meat which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give you. For him hath God the Father sealed. Then said they unto him, What shall we? What, um, what shall we do that we might work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that you believe on Him whom He hath sent. So here is the Lord Jesus Christ, and in fulfilment of that prophecy, back in the the seventy weeks prophecy, we read here that him hath the Father sealed and the word here means to set a seal upon, to mark with a seal, to set a mark or impress with a seal, uh, to confirm, to authenticate something, uh, a written document, somebody's testimony. Um, So we we talk about today in in North America, they have sworn affidavits, right? So you have to seal it, you have to sign this, this document that says that this is my testimony, and you authenticate it. Well, that's the same idea, but the Father had sealed the Son in fulfillment of that prophecy back in Daniel chapter 9. Well, how had he done this? So if you come back to chapter 5, we read here, I have a greater witness than that of John. The works which the Father hath given me to finish the same works that I do bear witness of me that the Father hath sent me. So this is John five thirty six. Remember, the word to seal is to authenticate so what the Lord is talking about here is the works that he did they bore witness of him that the father had sent him and the father himself he goes on to say which has sent me hath borne witness of me and you neither heard his voice at any time nor have seen his shape so here they are bearing witness which means it's that Greek word marturia Uh, from which we get the word martyr to be a witness, to testify, to give testimony or to authenticate. So the father authenticated him and also the works that he did also authenticated him. Now, we think of when the Father did this was the the time a couple of times. Uh, One, of course, was at his baptism when he was given the Holy Spirit, the voice from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And also um, at the transfiguration, a similar type of thing took place. So when we look at that little phrase in John chapter 6, and uh, this, this idea of the Son of Man, him hath God the Father sealed, This is what we're talking about. He was sealed by the works that he did and by the actual testimony or witness of the father himself. Fulfilling the prophecy that was there in um, the 70 weeks. Now come forward to Acts chapter 2 because the apostle Peter also makes a comment on this which is quite remarkable in this regard. Acts chapter 22, so we think of the fact that, you know, him hath the Father sealed. The Father had given him the Holy Spirit and had spoken from heaven. But it was the works that he did that they basically proved that the Father had sent him. They authenticated him. And in Acts chapter 2 and at verse 22, this is what we read. You men of Israel, hear the words, these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you. How? By miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves know. So here was a man who was approved. Now that's that similar type of word uh, um, to to declare, to prove, to demonstrate. With miracles, which is dunamis, the idea of strength, power, ability um, and wonders. Uh, portents, miracles that are performed, prodigy, talking about things in the future and signs which is that word a sign or a mark or a token uh, by which a person is distinguished from others. Uh, an unusual uh, occurrence, the concordance says, transcending the common course of nature. So, things out of the ordinary, signs portenting remarkable events soon to happen, miracles and wonders by which God authenticates men sent by him. So, that's the concordance definition of this word signs, which was uh, semion, um, and wonders, terras, miracles, dunamis, um, that were what approved the Lord Jesus Christ. So, the father sealed him gave him the spirit gave him and an approved him showing that he was approved of god by giving him this a power and ability to do this now what we'd like to do is just take a minute and and look at how messiah was formed how he was the first in a line of creatures that the father wanted to sign right he wanted to write his mark upon so that's what we want to spend just a couple of minutes thinking about is how this in fact um, can can be the the case so we're going to start by looking at the creation of the messiah so if you just come over to luke chapter one um we're going to see how the father formed the son and just see that there are some great um lessons spiritual lessons in this for us so luke chapter one and we come in at verse 30 where the angel comes to Mary. So Luke chapter 1 and verse 30. The angel said unto her, this is Gabriel, fear not, Mary, thou hast found favor with God. Behold, thou shalt bring, uh, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and call his name Jesus. So the Yahshua, the Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one that's going to be brought forth. ...is going to happen, Uh, he's going to be great we're told, and he's going to be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God is going to give unto him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there is going to be no end. So this is the career spoken of of the Lord Jesus Christ ahead of him actually being conceived... Now, Mary, um, this young virgin who's probably around uh, 16, 17 years of age, um, and well steeped and well read in the word, um, she is a little perplexed by what is said here. And so the question is in Luke chapter 1 and verse 34 How shall this be, says Mary to the angel, seeing I know not a man? And so the angel answers and says to her, The Holy Spirit shall come upon thee. And the word there is eperkomei, which means basically uh, to come from one place to another or to arise and come forth. And of course, epi is the idea to be upon. So to come upon one from another place, it's going to come upon thee. The power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also the holy thing which shall be born in thee shall be called the Son of God. So this is a holy thing that's going to be born and it's going to be called the Son of God. Now we want to take a moment and just consider this idea, the power of the highest overshadowing thee. So the word to overshadow is in the Greek episkiadzo. And it comes from the idea of casting an image upon something. Uh, a form that is, that is created by something being cast upon. So the idea of schiazo is an is a image or a, a shadow. Um, and again, it's that Greek um, prefix epi, which means to be put upon something. So interestingly enough. You know, today we have overhead projectors that can cast an image on the wall. Uh, Before that, we had overhead, uh, um, sorry, we we have LCD projectors today. Um, We had overhead projectors before that. And before those, and I actually remember these in in the very early days of school, we had something called an epidiascope. So there is epi. And uh, dia, through, is is the idea there. And it's casting an image through or upon something. So this is the very early LCD projector. Right, so you think about that, it casts an image on the wall. And in fact, if you ever have seen um, the little uh, slide that um, sometimes we put up there, it talks about the Ottoman Turks and it's from 1919 or something like that. And it calls it a Bible lantern lecture. This is the kind of lantern that they would have a slide that would project an image on the wall, which was pretty cool in those days um, because uh, you could see uh, what was uh, being put onto the wall. So this is the idea, the Holy Spirit is going to cast an image upon. Now, the phrase is used in Acts chapter 5, just a kind of a connecting phrase, when it says there in Acts 5 verse 15, inasmuch that they brought forth the sick in the streets and they laid them on beds and couches, that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might overshadow some of them. So it's the idea of casting a shadow upon. And it's also the same phrase that's used in Mark chapter 9 and verse 7 uh, regarding the transfiguration. So that's the idea to cast a shadow on. So we can think of that uh, an image being projected on a wall or a shadow that basically you can tell what's coming by the mark that's on the floor, on the wall or whatever it might be. Um, But I want you to just come and and follow this idea now as, as the Lord is described In the words of um, Colossians, come to Colossians chapter one. Um, Here we have some of the phrasing that describes the Lord Jesus Christ, his person, who he was um, when it comes to this. So we know that the the Holy Spirit would project an image upon to the room, the womb of Mary. And therefore, that holy thing that shall be born of thee, we're told, will be called the Son of God. So there was something that happened there that is out of the ordinary, but it was on the substrate of flesh. So God's image is projected onto the fleshly substrate. And so this becomes the Son of God. Now, Colossians chapter one, we read here about the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, And if we're just going to jump in. Uh, to verse 12, giving thanks unto the Father that has made us fit to be partakers uh, of the inheritance of the saints in light, who has delivered us from the darkness and has translated us to the kingdom of his dear Son. So there we have it, translated to the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, The firstborn of every creature. So this is the phrase here we want to just think about for a moment. He is the image of the invisible God. Now this word image is the Greek word icon. Right. So we think of the likeness of something or the moral likeness. Now, if you just come back in your Bibles to Luke chapter 20, this is the phrase that was used by the Lord Jesus Christ when he was having the discussion regarding taxes. Right. So um, Luke chapter 20 and verse 24. This is what we read. Show me a penny, says the Lord, whose image and superscription hath it? And they answered, well, it's Caesar's. And so he says, well, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but to God the things that are God's. And of course, we we use this in our seminars. It's quite an effective demonstration of, of, you know, how the Lord works and and what he has to say. Um, But the fascinating part here is the image is that word icon. The likeness or the, the, the picture that's there. So that's the one. Now, the other one is the superscription, the epigraph, as it is in the Greek. So to graph, to write, an epi, upon. So this is the title or the inscription on the coin. And you can see the inscription around the coin there of Tiberius Caesar. Well, this is, of course, what the Lord is driving at. Render to Caesar the things of Caesar. So money has God's uh, has the, uh, Caesar's inscription on it and his, and his image. Give that to Caesar. It's not what we're interested in. What does God want? Well, render to God the things that are God's. Well, what are the things that are God's? Well, let's go all the way back to Genesis chapter one again, where these themes begin, um, the beginning of this whole idea of the seal of God. Genesis chapter one and verse twenty six where the Elohim say, let us make man in our image and after our likeness, so they, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the fowl of the air, the cattle and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps in the, on the earth. So verse 27, Elohim created man in his own image, in the image of Elohim created he him, male and female created he them. So we are created in the image of God. Of uh, the Elohim that is at least. And so the idea here is render to Caesar the things that Caesar's. The money has Caesar's head upon it. So give that to Caesar. But what has, our, what has God's image on it is us. We are created in the image of God. And so therefore render to God the things that are God's. So that's the great lesson behind this. So let's follow this through then that the Lord Jesus Christ as he is described this way in colossians as we've we've looked at it there he is the image of the invisible god the firstborn of every creature so let's look at them who is this title that we're given there or this idea of messiah being the prototype um, because he becomes the pattern of the new creation and that's really what we want to follow in all of this is Messiah as the pattern of the new creation. So Colossians chapter 1, if we just go back to where we were, verse 13, we have here the Lord Jesus Christ, who had been translated to the kingdom of the Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood. This is how it's made possible, even the forgiveness of sins. And the Lord Jesus Christ, then the Son, is the image of the invisible God, and he's the firstborn of every creature. Now this is an important word here. It's the word proto So proto means the first, so the first in a line or in a series. And tiko or tokas is the idea of children, right? So this is the first in a line of children the first in a line of family. So when we think about this, we have prototypes. So when an engineer is going to build something, he builds a prototype. And it used to be a whole job. People would make them out of wood. You'd sit there and chisel away. Now they usually do it on a 3D printer and it will, they'll model this out maybe on a computer and then they'll print it on a 3D printer and they can assemble all these things together and say, Hey, this works pretty good or this is kind of awkward or whatever. Um, So they'll make these prototypes. Now once they've kind of got, what they want the prototype they will then create a series of other items like this manufacturing them after that same prototype well the Lord Jesus Christ is the prototype the first in a line of products that everything else is going to be patterned after right so that's what Christ is that's why it's worth taking a look at this so come back to Romans chapter 8 and at verse 28 So here we read uh, my dad's favorite verse in Romans 8, verse 28. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, who are called according to his purpose. And then verse 29, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn upon, uh, above, uh, among many brethren. So then that firstborn is that prototype again. It's the same idea, the beginning of a line, right? How is he going to be the firstborn amongst many brethren? Well, the interesting thing is they're going to be conformed to the image of the sun. Now, we'll come back to that word image in a moment. But the word conform there is the idea of some morphosis. Which basically means having the same form. So that's his purpose, to create a divine family from among men, all modeled after his son. Now there's something very comforting in this, and that is... You know, when you sometimes look at the Lord Jesus Christ and you think, oh, I just can't do it. Or you look at yourself, I would say, and you compare yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ and you say, I can't do it. Don't lose hope. Because the purpose of God was to not just create the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't end there. He wants to fill the earth with the knowledge of his glory. So there's a whole line of people he's working on developing. And he does that by conforming them to to fit them into the pattern or the mold of his son, some morphosis, to morph them into his mold. So what we're going through is a lifelong process of being formed into an image like his son. So that's what we've got to keep in mind. It's a work in progress. You're a work in progress. I'm a work in progress. So when you see me, with maybe my arm not quite in the right position yet, or a few little bits and pieces that need to be broken off and and sanded down. That's all right, we're in this process of morphing, of being conformed to the image of his son. So he is the prototype, so let's just take a look then at how the prototype was formed. Because if we want to be imaged like him or made like him, it's probably a good idea to see how this happened. Now, we talked about the fact that the Holy Spirit overshadowed the womb of Mary. So did he have an advantage? Is quite a, often a question we'll ask at baptism classes. Yes, he did, um, but he still had to make that decision. So the image of God was impressed upon him But it didn't just end there. It wasn't done. He had to learn obedience through the things he suffered. He had to make that choice. So he had the word there with him. But God was there all the way along educating him. So let's go back to Isaiah uh, to chapter 55 because these are some of those Emmanuel prophecies, right? So Isaiah 55, um, which is this idea of the Lord Jesus Christ as he's being um, formed, as he's being created, um, running through his whole lifetime, not just the end result, but that as he goes through this perfecting process, um, I I just want to read you, we call them the Emmanuel prophecies because of course um, we have that phrase uh, in, in Isaiah 7, uh, behold, uh, therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign in verse 14. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which, of course, is God with us. And I remember talking to a, a friend of mine, a guide for our Promised Land Youth Conference group in Jerusalem. And his name Mayor Eisenman, great guy. And, um, and I brought this, this passage up to him. He said, oh, yeah, but, you know, that word virgin can mean a young woman. I said, okay, fair enough. I said, so what's the miracle? He goes, what do you mean? He says, well, I'm going to give you a miracle, a sign. A virgin shall conceive. I says, there's not much of a miracle if a young woman has a child. I said, because billions of people do that every year. It's been going on since creation. So you kind of had to look at that for a minute. I said, the fact that she's a virgin is that this is a miracle I said and it also ties in with with Genesis 3 because in Genesis 3 it says it's the seed of the woman I said now in my biology class um, you know the seed comes from the man So this is the seed of a woman. This is a miraculous birth, and it ties with this, and it really gave him something to chew on, and I've yet to hear an answer from him. Um, But something to think about, that this is God with us, because it's a miraculous birth that God puts his word into the mind of this young man. Now, come to Isaiah 50, verse 4. We have the Lord Yahweh... Hath given me, and notice the phrasing here, the tongue of the learned that I should know to speak a word in season. He wakeneth morning by morning. He wakeneth mine ear to hear as the learned. The Lord Yahweh hath opened mine ear. Right? So this is what God did with him. He wakened. The word means to arouse, to incite, to stir up. So he was, yes, the word made flesh, as we'll look at in a moment. But God constantly infused his word into his mind morning by morning he wakens he stirs up my mind right my ear to hear as the learned Yahweh opened his ear but he had to be responsive I was not rebellious neither turned away back now that's usually our problem We can hear the word of God. We can go to Bible class, go to Sunday morning, go to Bible school. We can hear something and we can hear as the learned and you you learn this stuff. It's the doing of it that becomes the challenge. Right. So he's not rebellious. He allowed the character of the father to be impressed upon him, to let the word make the way he thought and and the way he, he behaved to be formed from that. And that's what we have to do if we want to follow his prototype, if you want to be conformed this way. It's a great idea to start your day with the word of God. I mean, having worked for, for a company for some 20 years, um, every morning I'd get up and I'd go off to work and you get all the problems of work and all the issues and the staff issues and the, the arguments in the in the sandbox as they really end up being at the end of the day. It's like kindergarten kids on a playground, right? They're all squabbling and arguing about something because they're all flesh, right? So what I learned was this passage here is brilliant because if you start your day in the word, looking at the kingdom to come, doing your readings, doing your Bible study in the morning, get a couple hours where the world's not bothering you and don't answer your phone, don't look at your email, do not whatever you do, go to Facebook or whatever. Open your Bible and let the Lord speak to you every single morning through his word. Get a little study going, look into it, because then what happens is you get to work and you don't care. I mean, you care in the sense that you do your job, but it just doesn't bother you anymore that this one's squabbling with that one. Because, you know, at the end of the day, you're going to rule the world. So some petty little squabble over who gets to do what first or something becomes irrelevant. And so it can really put all the nonsense or even if somebody's treating you poorly or you're getting the raw end of something, you really kind of go like, really, whatever. Like, I mean, like, you know, have your fun. You get to have your three score years and ten. Mind you, probably nobody will today. We'll run out of time before then. The Lord will be back. But have your fun in the sandbox. We are destined for the greater things to rule the world. And we look for a city whose builder and maker is God. We're going to be part of the society that God is building on this earth. Who cares? about the money and the place and, the, and, the, and the, all the things of this world. It doesn't matter. It's all going to go. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought we to be? So that's what we have in this. Open our ears morning by morning to hear as the learned, and then don't be rebellious to that word. When we then hear what God says and we read it and we think, hmm, well, that's not really the way I'm living my life then change the way we're living our life. That's not really the way we're doing this in our ecclesia or in our family or whatever. Then change it and conform ourselves to his word. Now come over to John chapter 1. So this is what the Lord did with him. He impressed his word on him right from the womb. He created in him this holy uh, thing that will be called the son of God. And in John chapter 1 and verse 14, it's put in terms that, of course, we know very well. Um, The word was made flesh and dwelt amongst us and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. Right. So this is what he did. He uh, dwelt among them. The word there is the word skino and proto to a tabernacle. To, to abide, right? So he was the word of God dwelling amongst them. And he's full of grace and truth. So when they looked at the Lord Jesus Christ, they were looking at the character of the Father. But it wasn't just the idea of creating an individual, but rather it was a whole group of people that the Father wanted to dwell in. Now, we want to go back, just jump back to to Exodus. So keep this in mind. The Lord Jesus Christ was the word made flesh. Now, once upon a time, God had written his word, not just on the mind of somebody, but he'd written it on some tables of stone. So if we go back to Exodus chapter 32, we have here the picture of the Lord writing uh, upon these tables of stone. So verse 15 of Exodus 32 Moses turned and went down uh, from the mount and the two tables of testimony were in his hand. Tables which were written on both sides, on one side and on the other, were they written. The tables were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God graven upon the tables. Right. So here we have them. They were written upon the word literally is katab, which means to write to inscribe or to engrave very similar to what we looked at in the word icon right or in those written upon right but it's not the end result God wasn't just trying to write this on the tables of stone what he was trying to do was write them on the minds and hearts of the people so if we come over to Deuteronomy chapter 30 This idea is expanded. I mean, like, people sometimes talk about the law. The law was terrible and this. No, it wasn't. The law is perfect, converting the soul. It's amazing. It's a wonderful thing. The problem is, people used it to justify themselves rather than learning how to be like their father. Deuteronomy 30 gives us the idea of what God was intending. So, Deuteronomy 30. Thou shalt hearken to the voice of Yahweh thy God to keep his commandments and his statutes which are written in this book and of the law that thou turn uh, turn unto Yahweh thy God with all your heart, with all your soul. But the word is very nigh to thee in thy mouth, in thy heart, that thou mayest do it. So the goal wasn't just to hear it, but it was to actually do something about it. They were to have it not just written in the book on a shelf. There's no point in having a library of books. Um, We've got to take those out and read them, get them into our minds, get our Bible out, read these things, get it into our minds and into our hearts so that basically it makes an impression upon it and not just hear it. But to do all the things that are written, to keep the commandments, to hearken to the words that are written in the book. And that's the challenge that we had. And that's what the Lord Jesus Christ had to do. He had to not be rebellious, not turn away his ear, but actually to engage with the Father's work. Now come to Proverbs chapter 3. This is uh, the Proverbs that are instructions that are given And here we find the same idea that is laid out for us. Proverbs 3, um, we find there, if we come down to verse 1, My son, forget not my law, but let thine heart keep my commandments. For length of days and long life and peace shall they add to thee. Let not mercy and truth forsake thee. Bind them about thy neck. Write them upon the table of thine heart. So shalt thou find favor and good understanding in the sight of God and man. Trust in Yahweh with all thy heart, lean not to thine own understanding, In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he will direct thy paths. So it wasn't just a goal of memorizing it, it wasn't being able to just recite it or to expound and elucidate on the word. The goal was to live the word, and the Lord Jesus Christ was the perfect example of this. He was the word made flesh he was the living embodiment of all those things that were written down under the law he lived the principles in his life and showed people the way of the father now come over to romans chapter 2 because this is where paul is is arguing about the law and he says look there's a much loftier uh thing here that we want so um romans chapter 2 and we're going to come in at verse 13 It's not the hearers of the law that are just before God, but the doers of the law that will be justified. For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or excusing one another. So this is the idea. Um, They didn't have the law of Moses. But they kept it. Now, they they didn't obviously, you know, keep all the little principle or the little um, like tithing of mint and cumming and anise. What they did was they kept the law, the principles of the law. That's what they were doing was the principles of the law. And it didn't matter whether you heard it. It was did you do it. And that's what it means to be written on the hearts. It's got to become part of our thinking. It's got to be part of how we respond, what frames the way we think. So when the Lord Jesus Christ is tempted in the wilderness, what does he say? It is written. Have you not read? You know, like this is what the scripture says. So his response to temptation was the father's judgment of it. And that's the way we've got to be. So what we need to do in this process is be like him. We need to not... Judge after our own understanding, but rather surrender our thoughts for his. Come to Isaiah 55, one of my favorite passages, because um, I think it was Uncle Vaughan Rowlands who drilled this one into me. Um, but this is the idea that we have laid out for us there. Isaiah 55 and verse six, where we read, seek ye Yahweh while he may be found, call upon him while he is near so it requires some effort of us and now what we're going to do is exchange let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to yahweh and he will have mercy upon him to our god for he will abundantly pardon for he tells us that my thoughts are not your thoughts neither are your ways my way saith yahweh for as the heaven is higher than the earth so are my ways than your ways Higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So you can see this contrast here. There is the way of man and there is the way of God. And what we're supposed to be doing is seeking Yahweh, calling upon him, forsaking our way. like Not like Cain who went his own way, seed of the serpent, right? That's our natural setting. But rather... Seeking God's ways and his thoughts and forsaking our thoughts, our ways and trying to learn about the father's thoughts and ways. A complete difference between our thoughts and God's, our ways and God's. So remember, you know, let us make us a city that we can build us and make ourselves a name. Right. Totally not what we're supposed to do. God says, seek me first. I'll make you a name like He did with Abraham. Right. It's not about us making a name. It's about God making his name known through us. Now, you think of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was the perfect embodiment of this. Come over to John chapter five now. Um, John chapter five. This is his testimony. John chapter five. And at verse 30, he tells us this. I can of mine own self do nothing as I hear. And that's from the father. I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of the father which hath sent me. So it wasn't his way, wasn't his thoughts. It wasn't his, you know, sort of take on things. He surrendered himself and adopted the father's thinking, the father's ways. He did not seek his own will, but he made his will the will of the father. Right. So this is the idea. This is what God has been trying to do with his people from the beginning. And he did it perfectly in his son. Now come over to Jeremiah 31. Because you can see here the end of the story. It doesn't end um, until well into the kingdom age. Because this is what God says he's going to do with his people, Israel, in the future time. So this process has been going on throughout time immemorial and will continue. So Jeremiah 31, we read here in verse 33. This is my covenant uh, I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith Yahweh. He's not writing it on a stone. I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. That's what happened with Christ. God wrote his law in his inward parts, put it into his heart, and he became the word made flesh. That's the process that's been going on with the Lord or went on with the Lord is going on with us and will happen with Israel in the future. So what we have to do is replicate the prototype in our lives, right? Um, And it's going to become a a subject of of another class, but we're going to take a little bit of a sneak peek at it as we kind of just develop this thought with Messiah. It it really fits into the context of this. Come to Habakkuk chapter 2. This is the grand purpose of the eternal spirit. This is what God is looking to do upon the earth he's going to create a divine family and that family is going to manifest his characteristics so we read in Habakkuk 2 verse 14 the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea right now this is what Moses had asked God right at the beginning show me thy ways that I may know thee the way of Yahweh which they corrupted back in genesis and then he turns around he phrases it and says show me thy name right, or show me thy glory sorry and god proclaims to him the name of yahweh right so that's what he actually proclaims to him is the name of yahweh and his name is his character because he goes on to list those things off in chapter 34 so that's what god did with him and the lord jesus christ of course was that word made flesh and note the words here we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the father. And what was that glory? Was it a bright shining light? No, 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 no. It was full of grace and truth. It was the character of the father that was shining forth from the Son, Right. So that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Now come to Hebrews chapter one, because here we have another description of him by the apostle, um, that we're going to just kind of follow through this idea. Hebrews chapter 1, and of course we begin reading here, God who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past to the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed to be the heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, or the cosmos, or the present arrangement of things." Who being the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power, when he himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Now that first little phrase there, the brightness of his glory. So we we looked at the glory. Of course, this is the New Testament version of it, doxa, which is the same idea. Um, But it's the brightness, right? And the word comes from the idea of apo, which means to come from and agadzo, which is to beam or to shine. So it's the idea to shine forth from something or to be the reflected brightness is what the, the Strong's kind of calls it. It's Strong's number 541, apogasma. So when we look at that, just to kind of illustrate this, if you just look at the, uh, the screen for a moment, what we have here is this idea. We have, if we, we would take the idea of a mirror, Right, so just thinking of a mirror, just to kind of illustrate this point. And if we were to take a flashlight and we were to shine that flashlight upon the mirror, it would then reflect something upon the wall or whatever it might be around us. Well, that's what the Lord Jesus Christ is. He's the perfect reflection that now shines forth. He has had the the image of the Father shone upon him, and he is perfectly reflecting that now onto the minds and the hearts of other people so that's kind of the idea as as we can think of it in just a a rudimentary way of, of discussing this so he is the brightness of his glory the express image of his person now this is the same idea this this idea of the express image it's kind of an interesting word it's the word that we use when you've got a keyboard right so we've got keyboard we have the keys on the keyboard and we call them characters. Well that's actually this Greek word here, it's Strong's 5481. It's the Greek word character and a character was an instrument used for engraving or carving or or stamping something on something else to get an exact expression or the image of a person or a thing. Now when we think about this it's a little bit more difficult to illustrate with a computer like you, you hit a key and something pops up on the screen but that's kind of like digitally done. But if we go back to the way I learned how to type, which is on a manual typewriter, you pressed a button, right, a key, and it pushed up a character against the paper and made an impression, a replica of that word upon the page. That's the idea here of a character, an image that has been stamped upon something. So this is the idea of that old-fashioned typewriter that's going to press up and leave a replica, a character. And both the the thing making the imprint and the imprint itself are this idea of the word character. So come over to um, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 because we've got these two ideas of the light shining. Uh, Take a flashlight, shine it on a mirror. It is perfectly reflected onto something else. And this idea of a character, which is to make an impression on something else. So we have this in the purpose of God. And, and Corinthians really kind of beautifully drives this all together. In, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and at verse 6, we read this. God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give, and notice what he's giving here, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face or the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that ties all those ideas together. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Show me thy glory, God, said, or Abraham asked. Show me your ways. And God says, I will show you my name. I will show you my character. And that light has shined by the Father into our hearts, which is the reflection of of the knowledge of the glory of God, of that yada, or this is gnosis in the Greek, but same idea, um, that intimate knowledge that is, is an experiential knowledge that is coming from the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and making an impression on us. And of course, we can't be cocky about this because God tells us, or Paul tells us, we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. And we always have to remember that, brothers and sisters, this is not our doing. It's the Father's doing. That is what this is. We take no glory in this. It's the Father who is doing this work in us. And we'll we'll look at that in, in future classes. So the Lord Jesus Christ then becomes the signet ring of the Father. And I just want you to go back to Haggai the little prophecy of Haggai in chapter two. Now in Haggai, Haggai's written, uh, one of the prophets that that's writing after the exile when they'd come back, Ezra, Nehemiah, Zechariah, he's kind of one of the beginning ones of that time period. And um, Haggai is there and he is giving his prophecy and there is a, a, a little thing that's tied into this um, that really gives gives us an idea of, of um, what this is all about. So it's in Haggai, um, And uh, what we're looking for is, um, it should actually be verse 23, not verse D. um, But verse 23 there, Haggai 2 verse 23. It's in that day, saith Yahweh of hosts, will I take thee, O Zerubbabel, my servant. So this is actually a prophecy using his as an example. The son of Shealtiel, saith Yahweh, and I will make thee as a signet. For I have chosen thee, saith Yahweh of hosts. So he was to be made as a signet ring. Right? So this is the idea of a signet ring, which would be used to stamp upon something, to carry the authority. And we'll look at this in a later class. We're going to develop this out when we look at it in our, in our next class tomorrow. And we look at the sealing of God. Right? So the signet ring was going to set the authority of the Father... Um, up Well, on, of whoever the ring belonged to, and they would put it onto um, the document, right? So if you had a scroll that came from so-and-so, you would signify it with your ring, and that would um, authenticate it that this was coming from the king or whoever it was coming from. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ, is rubbable in type, but really the Lord Jesus Christ would be the signet of the Father. He would be authenticated. And remember that the lord jesus christ as we looked at the beginning will seal both the prophet and the vision right so the prophet was sealed by the father he was a man approved of god and god says i will make you my signet well how was that done come over to john chapter 17. this is the prayer of the lord jesus christ and we'll develop this more tomorrow um, but we just want to kind of catch this thought as as we close for today John chapter 17, how this process happened is given to us in verse 17. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so I have sent them into the world. For their sake I sanctify myself that they also might be sanctified through the truth. So, when you look at that, him has the Father sealed, right? He was sanctified, and he would become the sanctifier. Now his goal was to make an impression of the Father's character upon us. And we're going to look at this greater tomorrow, um, but this process is impressing our minds with the Word. So sanctify is the word hegizo, from which we get the word saint, right? A a saint is a sanctified one. It means to separate something that is, you know, from the profane and dedicate it to God, to consecrate something to God, to purify internally by the renewing of the soul is is what the, the word has it in the concordance. And they're sanctified by the truth. The truth, the true things that pertain to God. Right. So this is the process that's going to take place. And the Lord says, if you'll notice here, I sanctify myself that they also might be sanctified through the truth. So he's the prototype. If we want to be like the son, he sanctified himself. We must also sanctify ourselves, sanctify them through thy truth, through the word that is truth. And that's the only way, brothers and sisters, that we can do this. When we look at separating people out of the world, whether it's ourselves, our families, our children, our interested friends, the only thing that can do that is the word of truth. It's not barbecues and social activities and, you know, reaching out through coffee houses or or whatever it might be. Um, It's only the delivery of the word that can separate people out of the world. That's what the Lord did and that's what we have to do, starting with ourselves. If we want to replicate this process, we must begin with ourselves and sanctify ourselves with the word of truth, allowing the father's word to impress our minds and our hearts like it did his son, not to be rebellious, not to turn back, but to allow it to have its impression upon us. And so how does that happen? Over to Romans chapter 1. This is the work of the word. Which we'll look at tomorrow God willing. Or Sunday. Paul says I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God. Unto salvation. To everyone that believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. The word of truth. The word of the gospel. Is the power of God. Unto salvation. It's the activating agent. It is what can transform minds and hearts, and it's the only thing that can. So as we begin this process, and we've looked at today the sealing of, of, the, of the Lord Jesus Christ, how the Father spoke to him, he woke him morning by morning, he put his word into his heart, into his mind, to give him the tongue that he had speakers the learned. He was not rebellious, he didn't turn back. We want to do the same thing. Get the Father's thoughts into our minds and, and into our hearts and do them. And as those two societies developed from the beginning, we don't want to allow ourselves to be pulled off into the world and and to turn away from the Father to those things. We want to stay with the Lord Jesus Christ and stay with the family of God, not go out from them and into the world, but rather stay dedicated to those things so the Father can use us in his grand purpose to fill the earth with the knowledge of his glory as the waters cover the sea. And God willing tomorrow we'll develop these themes out, we'll look at both the seal of God and the mark of the beast and how those two things are going to work against each other and are present in both our individual lives, they are in the world around us and they're in our ecclesial lives and there's this constant struggle just like there was back in Genesis in the divine family at the beginning, like there was in Noah's time, like there was after the flood, it goes all the way through right the way to the kingdom age and god willing tomorrow we'll continue to to look at those things thank you very much Uh, a subject that really is one of the the great themes that goes through the bible I remember years ago brother Harry Tennant talking about the the great golden threads and that if we would simply tug on those golden threads we could see this go all the way through the scriptures from genesis through to revelation and that is the subject that we have before us today is is a subject that travels that whole span of time so we're going to begin to look really before we get into the, the seed of the the um the seal of God and and the mark of the beast at, at kind of its predecessor. And that is the grand theme that travels through the scriptures that we have. And when we consider this, we have been in the book of Revelation. Let's just turn over to chapter 13 because we see here that there are two imprints, and this is really where we're going to end up. Um, In Revelation chapter 13, we have the first of them, which is in verse 16. We read, He causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand and in their forehead, and that no man might buy or sell, save that he had the mark, or the name of the beast, or the number of his name. So that is the the first of these two um, things that are impressed into people's minds. Now, the second one is what we just read about in Revelation chapter 7 and verse 2, where we read, I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was given to the hurt, the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. So during the Bible school, we plan to follow the story that begins really in in, in Genesis and it ends up here. And and we're going to see this this unraveling of this this thread as it goes all the way through. We're going to see these two classes of people develop and practically consider how we can be either part of one or part of the other. And learn how that we can prepare ourselves to receive the seal of God. So let's go then to the beginning of the thread. We want to go all the way back to the book of Genesis and chapter 3, where we are introduced to this division that is going to take place and travel through the Bible. So Genesis chapter 3 and at verse 1, and here's what we read. The serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which our way God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. And and so she goes on and gives her confession of faith. But we just want to begin here to consider how this takes place. We have the serpent who is giving his alternate view. So he begins by questioning God. He puts doubt into the mind of the woman. And then what he does is he turns around and presents another idea. And so when we look at this, he gives his alternate view. And so the woman has given her confession of faith in verse 3, and he turns around in verse 4 and says to the woman, "'You shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day you eat thereof your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil.'" So this is his alternate view to what God had said. And I think it's just an important thing to consider here that how the apostasy begins and how it works it begins by questioning God that's how it begins it questions God and then it inserts another idea now it's not entirely a false idea but it's an idea that's more dangerous than entirely false idea it's an idea that's mixed with truth and and a little bit of error is in there as well um, well a lot of error maybe in a little bit of truth and so so here we have this alternate view that's put in and it's a great deception that is there for the woman because this thinking of the serpent is adopted by the woman. And she is deceived and brought into sin. So verse 6, when the woman saw the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and she gave it to her husband with her, and he also ate. So this is that the thinking of the serpent, And it is taken in by the woman. So an idea is presented to her mind. She sees and she hears what he has to say. And she adopts this as her line of reasoning. And that's really where mankind goes wrong. It's when he rejects God's idea or God's principles that are laid out. And an alternate idea is introduced and then we listen to that alternate idea. We, we like what it says because it pleases our flesh. And we adopt that thinking. And, of course, it leads to death. And so that's what happened to the woman here. So let we just kind of analyze this for a moment. Let's just take a look at what the serpent uh, was doing here in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1 to 3. So the first thing he does is he questions God. And he says, you know, hath God Said. Now, what we want to do is just turn, if you would, in your Bible to to, um, uh, John chapter 8. So, in this class, we're going to do a little bit of thumbing through the scriptures as we we follow this through. John chapter 8, we find here that the comment that the Lord makes on what the serpent has to say. So, John chapter 8 and the 44th verse, he says, You are of your father, the devil. The lust of your father will ye do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there was no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. So here's the key, is that the, the serpent did not speak the truth, but he spoke a lie that was of his own making. And so this is the problem, is that the the lie is man-made, or in this case, it's serpent- made. it's It's really the the base nature that we have, it can present these ideas to us. Now, come over to second of Peter, um chapter two here, because we find here in verse um nineteen, it should actually be in in second peter chapter two, and and this is Peter uh, discussing what the apostasy was doing in second Peter chapter two, and um while well, we can begin at verse eighteen. When they speak great swelling words of vanity, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through much wantonness, those who were clean escaped from them who lived in error. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption, for of whom a man is overcome the same as he brought into bondage. So here's the key. They're appealing to the flesh and they are speaking words That are words that appeal to our natures, promising liberty, but actually bringing about corruption. And of course, they also promised equality. He said, you will be like the Elohim, knowing good and evil. So it's kind of interesting here because we see some seeds of some of of the... um, events I guess you could say that would happen much later in time we have liberty and we have equality and we have this idea of fraternity of, of being equal to the angels and and some kind of a, a liberty that, that you know you will not surely die and, and things like that so right in Genesis we have the seeds of things that will show up much later in the book of Revelation. So this is what he does, he promises all these things but of course the result is actually death as we looked at in John uh, chapter 8 and verse 44. He does not speak the truth, he speaks lies of his own making and those lies of course bring about death and that is of course what we find with the serpent here. So there's an underlying theme then that that goes right through the book of Revelation. Now we we know this, this is a very much a, a, a simple first principle. We typically introduce our interested friends to this right at the very beginning or our young people when we talk about the grand theme. And it's verse 15 of Genesis chapter 3 where God pronounces his sentence and he tells us he's going to separate, right? He says, I'm going to put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heed. So here we see there's an enmity, a division that God puts in place between these two seeds and that's going to flow all the way through the book of Revelation or all the way through the Bible I should say to the book of Revelation so this is a division that's going to travel the entire span of the scriptures now what we want to do then is is take a look at a little bit of the beginning of that development um, in our first class together just to see how these things are going to roll out So we're going to begin with looking at the apostasy that happened before the flood. So following the incident in the garden, it doesn't take long for these two seeds to manifest themselves. And the first occurrence really that we read of this this enmity comes up in Genesis chapter 4. So let's just take a look at Genesis chapter 4. We find here at verse 3, it came to pass in the process of time that Cain brought to the fruit of the ground an offering to Yahweh, right? Abel also brought the firstlings of his flock uh, and the fat thereof, and Yahweh had respect to Abel and to his offering. So here we see that there are two ways of worshipping God two offerings that are brought forward and this is really the two seeds we have Cain and it's an interesting section to read in Alpes Israel where brother Thomas talks about the idea of him being the result of the sin of Adam and Eve they knew that they were naked and the word Yadah for know there is the the Hebrew idiom to know somebody intimately Um, and so the implication is that he was literally the result of their their sin but be that as it may, what's interesting here is that you have two people who are entirely in different mindsets and they, they, they run an entirely different way of doing things. Cain does what he thinks is the right thing. You could say he's the Frank Sinatra of the world. He does it his way, right? And, and there's a lot of people out there that take great pride um, in saying that they've done it their way. Um, well, not a good idea when it comes to the Bible. Come over to Hebrews chapter 11, um, because we, we read here um, of the 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 view of the Almighty of these two things. We read in Genesis that Cain's offering or Abel's offering was accepted, uh, but Cain's wasn't. And we're not going to dig too deep into the whole story between the two of them, but we just want to have a look at how this played out. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 4 We read there, by faith, so this was Abel's motive, it was faith. Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained the witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and by it, uh, he being yet dead, yet speaketh. So here we have um, Abel, who has a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. So Cain, though, I mean, he did bring an offering, and it's actually described to us if we come over to Jude. um, Jude and verse 11 talks about the apostasy and those people that are of this kind of seed of the serpent line. And this is how they worship, because they do worship. They have a form of religion. Um, But it says there in verse 11 of Jude that basically this is what he says. Woe unto them, they have gone in the way of Cain and ran greedily after the other error of Balaam for a reward, perishing in the gainsaying of Korah. So this is described as the way of Cain. This is how he operates. Now come back to Colossians chapter 2 because this idea of having his own way and doing things his own way. Um, again, it's not, a, it's not a worldly expression. That's the expression that the deity gives in describing this through the holy men that he inspired to speak through the Holy Spirit. So when we come to Colossians, we find here in Colossians chapter 2 and at verse 18, um, he says, Let no man beguile you, uh, it, it, your reward, sorry, um, let me just read the whole passage there. Let no man beguile you of your reward in voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up in his fleshly mind. Right, not holding the head and so he goes on. But here's the point, it's voluntary humility. So this is this is things that men have decided, this is how they would like to worship God. So they're gonna bring their offering and they wanna do it this way. And that's a huge thing we struggle with today Because the world just says, look, everybody can do what's right in their own eyes. And if you're going to bring an offering to God, well, God should just accept it. Because, hey, you brought an offering. And, of course, that's completely man-centered in its thinking. It's not about coming to God and trying to please God. It's telling God, well, this is what I offer. That should be good enough for you. And, of course, it doesn't work that way. And the world thinks that that, that it works that way, um, but it, it really doesn't. So there's this appearance of, of wisdom that really isn't... Um, things at all so verse 23 of chapter 2 which things indeed have a show of wisdom in will worship and humility neglecting of the body not in the honor to the satisfying of the flesh right so so not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh this is this is an appearance of of wisdom right so uh, that's the word in the ESV the way it describes it there it has an appearance of wisdom it's this this self-made religion um, that has all its trappings and of course they're not what God is looking for now come back to uh, Genesis chapter 4 the amazing thing is the mercy of our God that even though Cain came on his own terms and was going to do things the way that he thought he should do them or that he wanted to do them. God was willing to accept his person. And so we read there in verse 5, unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. So God didn't respect Cain's offering. Um, And Cain was very wroth, so he's angry that he's not accepted by God for doing it his way. And his countenance falls. And Yahweh said unto Cain, Why are you wroth, and why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, shalt thou not be accepted? And if not, well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall be be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. So here we have the way of Cain. It's not accepted, but if Cain was to do well god would accept him but of course that's not the way that he wants to go so we have this division in the family of god i mean think of this this is this this is the first family and there is a division in this family and what drives that division is one wanting to do it his way and another faithfully because that's what hebrews told us by faith Abel offered a more excellent sacrifice. Now just come over to second or First Corinthians chapter 11. because brothers and sisters and, and young people and, and friends when we come to our ecclesial family, we also run into divisions. We do run into schisms that take place amongst us. And what we find here in in 1 Corinthians 11 is is that the issue is quite often similar. 1 Corinthians 11, and reading there at verse 18, he says this. "Um, First of all, when you come together in the ecclesia, I hear that there be divisions among you. And I partly believe it, for there must also be heresies, or factions as the word means, among you, that they which are approved might be made manifest among you. So here we have this fact that there are divisions amongst them. And that of course has been the case since the beginning of time. Um, You know, sometimes people will look at the Christadelphian community and say, look, you've got all these factions, all these divisions, you've got, um, well, there's just a a laundry list of all the different groups that that are there. Um, But that's nothing new. It's always been that way. But notice now the reason he says, there must also be heresies or factions among you. Why? That those who are approved might be made manifest. Now the word there for approved is doikimos, Strong's number 1384, and it's the idea of the money changers of integrity who would accept nothing counterfeit. Men of honor who would only put the genuine full weight of money into circulation because money was always measured by weight. So when we talk about a shekel, it's literally a unit of weight. A pound, in the British system, a pound was a pound of whatever it was. It was literally a weight. So it's it's a just weight or a just measure. Those who are approved are people who are using just weights and measures. They're going to be made manifest. And the word there is the word phanerosis. Um, Which we of course know uh, it means to be made plainly recognized or known to be made apparent evident to bring something to light or to expose it. So that's why there are going to be divisions amongst us just like there was back in the Garden of Eden with Cain and Abel. God has allowed these things so that we can make choices and hopefully make the right choice with the guidance of the scripture. Now come over to first of John chapter 2, where we read about one of those divisions in the first century. So when we look at this idea, this grand theme, it's, it's right there in Genesis. It's all the way as John's writing the last of the apostles, one of the last letters that is written in 1st of John chapter 2. And we, we write, read here at verse 19 about the division that was going on in his day. And he tells us that they went out from us. Why? Well, because they were not all of us. But if they had been of us, no doubt they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. So here's the issue. They went out. And in going out, they were revealed or made manifest or fanaru for what they were. And it's exactly, if we go back to Genesis, what Cain does. So when we look at this, we think, well, this is the ecclesia in the first century. They had divisions, they had schisms, and there was changes that took place. Um, But go all the way back to Genesis chapter 4 and have a look here and see what Cain does. When he's rejected of God, when this doesn't go the way that he wants it to go, he makes a specific choice. So back in Genesis and chapter 4 now, um, verse 8, Cain talks with his brother, first of all. And uh, it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against his brother and he slew his brother. So this is the way it goes. There is a fight amongst them um, and Cain slays his brother. Now, I just want to make a point here. Sometimes we have this little humanistic phrase when we run into problems, whether it's in life or whether it's in ecclesial life or family life or whatever. and, And people say, well, you know, it takes two. I like to always point to Genesis chapter 4 and say, really? Because I don't see Cain um, or Abel bearing any responsibility for what happened here. He is a righteous man. And what it took was the flesh. It doesn't always take two. It takes flesh. And what flesh does is flesh goes against his brother. And, and his motive here is is seen very clearly. So So this is the, the first occurrence. Now let's just go back to first of John, keep your finger in Genesis. Well, I guess it's right at the beginning. You don't really need to think keep a finger there. But if we go back to first of John chapter three, we find here um, this is the message we read in first of John chapter three and verse 11 that you have from the beginning that you should love one another. Well, he says, not as Cain, Who was, and notice the phrasing here, who was of that wicked one. He was the seed of the serpent. One of the reasons Brother Thomas draws that out. So he was of the wicked one and slew his brother. And wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil and his brother's righteous. Marvel not, brothers and sisters, if the world hate you. Right? So here's the deal. He was jealous he was motivated by jealousy his own works were evil and his brother's works were righteous so therefore he slew him so this is what cain did and and so now i just want you to take a breath here i suppose it's me that needs to take a breath i rabbit on sometimes but let's just think about this now here we are in genesis we have a division that's taking place We have the seed of the woman. We have the seed of the serpent. We have divisions. We have somebody who goes the way of Cain. He's got his own agenda and does his own thing. And right at the very beginning, we have here now a mark, which I think is fascinating when we look at our subject that we're going to develop over this weekend, God willing. Take a look at Genesis chapter 4 and verse 15. Yahweh says to Cain wherefore whosoever slayeth Cain vengeance shall be taken upon him sevenfold. And Yahweh set a mark upon Cain lest any finding him should kill him. Now isn't that interesting? Now the definition there for the word mark is the Hebrew word oat. It is uh, a sign, a signal, a distinguishing mark, a, a token or a warning. So here Right at the beginning, as we have this division of seed of the woman, seed of the serpent, there is a mark that is set on Cain. It distinguishes him from others. So fascinating, in in my opinion, that we have this mark that is put upon Cain. So there we have it. He is marked. He has this mark set upon him and this defines him now keep going if we we go back to Genesis and and chapter 4 now and just keep reading there what does Cain do remember what John says they went out from us because they were not of us they've gone the way of Cain uh, we read of in Jude and so on well here we find what they actually did or what he actually did in in Genesis chapter 4 and we have here in verse 16 then Cain went away from the presence of Yahweh. And the the literal there is from the faces of Yahweh, the panim, right? From the faces of Yahweh and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch. And he built a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. So this is what Cain does. He leaves the presence of God and he founds a society. He builds a city and he names that city after the name of his own son, right? So he is founding a society here and naming it after his own son. So this is the society of Cain that has developed. So we started out, we had the seed of the woman, seed of the serpent. We now have the two sons, Abel, and then we had, of course, Cain. Cain slays Abel, and this thing now projects out. Abel is, of course, dead, and we'll see that Seth is appointed as another seed. But here we have Cain, then he leaves the presence. He goes out from the family of God, and goes and founds his own society and that's what this type of thinking will do it'll lead us away from the ecclesia to go do something of our own volition so that we can make a name for ourselves so here we have now the society of cain as we just read he makes a name for himself and he builds a city and names it after his own son now i just want you to turn to psalm 49 Because in Psalm 49, we we have a little passage here that talks about people who do this kind of thing. So the 49th Psalm, and we find here, if we come down to um, verse 11, this is what man does. So let's start at verse 10. He uh, seemeth to be wise, um, he seemeth seeth that wise men die, likewise the fool, the brutish man perish, and leave their wealth to others. However, he says, their inward thought is that their houses shall continue forever, their dwelling places to all generations... They call their lands after their own names. So that's what they do. They call their lands after their own names. Nevertheless, man um, being in honor abideth not. He is like the beasts that perish. So this is the issue that we have. Um, They're like the beasts that perish. So when we consider that, Um, You know, they they think that this is going to go on. Their posterity shall go on and on and on, but it's just not going to be that way. They're going to be laid in the grave as he goes on there like a sheep, and and really they're going to be forgotten. But, verse 15, God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, and he shall receive me. But people, others, uh, um, verse 20, man that is in honor and understandeth not, is like the beasts that perish. So, now when we take a look at that and, and we consider this and we see how this is going, um, it's just something to consider um, how things have taken place. They call their lands after their own names um, they think they're going to continue forever but they're not. So let's go back to Genesis. Um, let's go back to um, Genesis chapter 4 and we find here in Genesis chapter 4 that there is this this growth of these university cities, right? So these are men of education, right? Because Enoch, his name literally means education. And what we find here is that they go on and they, they are fathers of these university cities. So um, we have in verse 20. Um, so this is Lamech, descendant of of, um, of Enoch. And uh, we, we find there that Lamech took unto him two wives. And uh, verse 20, Ada bare Jabel. He is the father of such as dwell in tents and such as have cattle. So he is the, the minister, you could call him, of homes and agriculture. This is the one who is the father, he's the, the progenitor of, he's the, the the head boss of those people who are into this type of thing. But then we go on in verse 22, we have here another son, tubal Tubalcain, he's an instructor, notice the phrase there, an instructor, and if you look at the the um, the Hebrew in the margin, it's a wetter, uh, somebody who sharpens in, in brass and iron, right? So this is a man who is uh, an instructor or a wetter in brass and iron. These are instruments of death that basically he is creating. Sorry, I missed verse 21. There we had um, Jubal who is the father of all such as handle the harp and the organ, which, of course, is uh, music and entertainment. So pretty much it covers the gamut, whether we're talking about building homes, whether we're talking about agriculture, uh, what shall we eat, what we shall we drink, and wherewithal shall we be clothed, uh, music and entertainment, or weapons of war. All of those things are covered by the Society of Cain. So that's the one side. So we have that seed of the woman, and the seed of the serpent, the seed of the serpent here has persecuted the seed of the woman. He has done so because he's, he's jealous of him. He is motivated by his own things. He's gone his own way. He's left the presence of Yahweh. He's gone out from the family of God and he's founded his own society. And he's founded on human wisdom and learning. And just a little caveat here. Yes, brothers and sisters, and especially young people, we all need training to get a job. But remember... The university cities of the world were founded by the families of Cain. They were the ones who wanted to do their own thing in the face of God, do it their way. And if you have to go, go with that, with your eyes wide open, that this is what their plan is is to indoctrinate minds and thinking with their ways and their thinking. Just be aware of that. It's right at the beginning in Genesis. In fact, it was Brother Roberts who once made the comment. He says, I was never cursed with a good education. So just remember that. It's not all about, you know, MADs and PhDs and whatever else after your name. It's about... Having the seal of God in our foreheads, not necessarily the mark of the beast. Now, it doesn't mean that you can't go to school. We all have to learn somewhere, whether we do an apprenticeship, as I did, whether we uh, go on and and get some training, whatever it is. But try to make it practical and try to keep the world out of your head. Anyway, suffice that is, let's now consider the, the other side of this whole story, which is the family of God. So we've had this developing on the one side. Now we want to look at the development on the other side. So following the incident in the garden, you know, we have those two seeds that develop. The second one now is the society of Seth, right? So we've had the society of Cain. And in in chapter 4 and verse um, 25, we read, Adam knew his wife again. She bare him a son and called his name Seth for God said she has appointed me another seed instead of Abel uh, whom Cain slew so she sees right here that this is God's doing he is the appointer of another seed right so he's the seed of the woman he's not of that wicked one as we read in John rather he's the seed of the woman and notice here the parallel verse 26 he has a son And he calls the name of his son Enos. It's Enoch. It's the same name. It's education. But it's an entirely different kind of education. You see, because what he's doing here um, is that it says there, um, then began men to call upon the name of Yahweh. Now, if you look in the margin, um, or if you were to look at Elpis Israel, it says, or they began to call themselves by the name of Yahweh. So, so this is the group of people who are naming themselves and framing themselves after Yahweh. They're not interested in setting up their own name. They're not interested in making a name or a place for themselves. They give the glory to God and they call themselves after the name of Yahweh rather than calling their cities after themselves. So it's a completely different way of thinking. Now if you come over to chapter 6 and at verse 2, we read there, that we have the sons of God, right? Uh, then the sons of God, and see the daughters of men, but just, we'll come to that in a moment, but the point here is that they are the sons of God, right? So these are the people who are the family of God. Now, of course, um, it doesn't take long, and we have a, uh, a change that's taking place. We have the seed of the woman, um, and the seed of the serpent now as, as they're going to develop side by side. So in Genesis chapter 5, just over the page there, in verse 21, we find about this the seed or family of God. Genesis chapter 5, um, we have here in verse 21, uh, we read here of Enoch who lives uh, 60 and 5 years and begets Methuselah. And Enoch walked with God. Right. So there's the phrase that we're looking at. He walks with God. That is the kind of person that Enoch is. And and he's not because God takes him. So he's removed um, so that he won't see a violent death is is what that seems to be saying there. Um, But he walked with God. Now, we just want to follow this man. Um, Just keep your finger in Genesis again. Let's just flick over to um, Hebrews chapter 11, because in Hebrews chapter 11, what we have here is the. The divine um, commentary on this as the Apostle Paul, speaking through inspiration, describes to us um, Enoch in verse five of Hebrews 11. By faith, Enoch was translated that he should not see death and he was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. So here's a man of the family of God. He pleases God. Now, if you come over to Jude and verse 14, Enoch pops up again. So just as Cain and those who went the way of Cain popped up in Jude, we also have Enoch, who is the family of God. He's also popping up in uh, in Jude. And we read in verse 14, Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these saying behold the lord comes with ten thousand of saints uh, to execute judgment on the ungodly and so on and so forth so here he is he is a man who is a witness he's a faithful witness against the apostasy now so there's there's um enoch and, and we followed down we had lamech who started having all these university cities well here we have um Enoch, who has uh, uh, one of his descendants in Genesis chapter six, is also somebody who is described the same way. It's Noah in verse eight. Noah found grace in the eyes of Yahweh. These are the generation of Noah. Noah is a just man and perfect or upright, as you see the margin says there in his generation. And again, Noah walked with God. Right. So when you consider that, He walked with God. Now, if you just turn over the page to chapter 7 and verse 1, Noah is told by Yahweh, Come thou and all thy house into the ark, for thee have I seen righteous before me in this generation. So Noah is described as somebody who was seen as righteous by God in his generation. Now, if we were to just um, flick over to... um, Hebrews chapter 11 again, right in that same little section where we were just looking out with Enoch. In Hebrews chapter 11, should have kept my finger in there. Um, Hebrews chapter 11, we have this description of him. So as we see these two families develop, Hebrews 11 and verse 7, it says this. By faith Noah, when he was uh, being warned of God of things not seen, uh, as yet moved with fear prepared the ark to the saving of his family and of his and of, of his house by which he condemned the world and became the heir of righteousness which is by faith so before abraham comes along we have noah who who listened to what god said and he believed god and he was motivated to act on that belief and so he condemns the world um, because he's a preacher as we're going to see if we just flip over to second peter two just like enoch as he's described in jude um, peter describes noah also as a witness right he was somebody who witnessed against the the falseness of uh, the society of cain so in second peter chapter two and at verse five We read there, God spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world uh, of the ungodly. Right. So here we have Noah, who is motivated by faith. He's somebody who is absolutely um, believes God. It's accounted to him for righteousness, just like it will be said of of, um, Abraham later on. And he's described as being a preacher of righteousness. So there's your two families as they develop, but it doesn't take long, of course, for a clash to take place once again, as we saw with Cain and Abel. So if we just take a look now, back in Genesis and chapter 6, we find here that we have uh, this, this great uh, problem. In, in chapter 6, verse 2, the sons of God, so there's your seed of the woman, they saw the daughters of men, and there's the seed of the serpent, that they were fair, and they took them wives of all they chose. So here we have, unfortunately, the intermingling of the the, the saints with the world, right? And, and we have this in, in Exodus chapter 34, and it's it's a great, um, you know, It's not just a Christadelphianism, and sometimes I've heard people say that, but it's not. This is what the world can do to us. Exodus 34, and we read here in verse 14, he says, Thou shalt worship no other god, for Yahweh is, is whose name is jealous is a jealous God. God is jealous. He doesn't want to share us with others. But you shall break their altars, cut down their images, their groves, and thou shalt worship no other god. Um, that was verse thirteen. Sorry. Lest he says in verse fifteen, thou make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and go a whoring after their gods and do sacrifice after their gods, um, and one call thee and thou eat the sacrifice and thou shalt take or and thou take of their daughters and their sons. And uh, and their daughters go whoring after their gods, and their sons go whoring after their gods, and they shall make. Uh, basically, they're going to make you go whoring after the gods that they have chosen. So, I mean, this is this is the the story, the sad story, many times over. Um, we have it there in in First of Kings chapter one. We won't turn this one up, but in verses six one to six, Solomon's wives turned away his heart from other gods. But do come to Psalm one hundred 106 um, because here it just kind of gives us it in in kind of the coles notes version um, psalm 106 and uh, if we come over to verse 34 this is what happened to israel they did not destroy the nations whom God, uh, Yahweh had commanded them, but they mingled among the nations and they learned their works. They served their idols and they became a snare to them. And they sacrificed their sons and their daughters to their devils, to their idols, same word, and uh, shed innocent blood and so on. So they defiled, verse 39, with their own works and they went to whoring after their inventions. And brothers and sisters and young people, this is just a caution. You know, well it's not a caution, it's a screaming trumpet of alarm really is that if we involve ourselves with the world and all of its goings on, they will take our hearts away. Now, COVID's come along and everybody's moaning and groaning about COVID and, and what it's done to us. Well, I'll tell you one thing it's done, um, certainly around here, it's shut down all the bars right now. I mean, in BC where my sister lives, the bars were still open, but the churches were closed. Figure that one out, but anyway. Uh, but in Ontario, it shut down all the bars. It shut down all the sporting events. It shut down all of those things that the movie theaters and all those things that, that man involves himself in. But also that a lot of us involve ourselves in. Our kids are in this sports program and that sports program. And, and not that there's anything wrong with kicking a ball around a little bit and getting some exercises. It's a good thing. But when that becomes who we are and what we do and it defines us, That's the problem, and that's what happened in in the Psalms here. They mingled among the nations, and they learned their works, and they served their idols. A great caution to us. When COVID goes away, if it does, do not go back to the vomit of the world. Right? We've been washed. Do not go back to the world and all of its filth and dirt that sometimes has stuck to us. These things have been stopped. They've been been put away from us, um, so let's not go back to them. So back to Genesis, um, just before I digress too far and run out of time, um, back to Genesis chapter 6, um, we have here this, this society. On the flip side then, we have these great men of renown. There were giants in the earth in those days. Uh, that came uh, uh, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bare to them uh, the same, became mighty men, men of renown, and the word there is men of fame. Right. So this is what it is. You know, like we look at that today. Everybody wants to be famous. You've got Britain's got talent. I, I, I love the American version, American Idol. Right. So idolatry. And, and people want to be famous. They want to be men of fame, the movie stars and all this kind of stuff. Um, that's what the world wants. Well, here, when the sons of God, so there's the seed of the woman mingled with the daughters of men, their descendants became people of name and of fame and of renown, and they are the Nephilim. Um, Nephilim in, in verse uh, 4, there, that's what the word giants is, or the fallen ones of fame. So this is what happens, right? This is what takes place in verse 5. It tells us the result. God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every imagination of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. If that doesn't describe... The day and the age in which we live, which our Lord told us would be like the days of Noah, then what does? They were evil continually. The thinking of the serpent had completely penetrated their minds. So much so that verse 12 tells us that all flesh had corrupted God's way upon the earth. And that's the way it had become. All flesh had corrupted his way except for Noah and his little family. And that's what will happen to us if we think that we can survive mingling with the world. Just take a look at Genesis. One teeny tiny little family out of the two seeds that developed and and spread out. And all those children were born and all those generations. By the time you come to this, you've got one pathetic little family as far as numbers goes. But mighty that would continue on for eternity. Um, Well, some of them anyway. And then you have this whole society that was just standing on its feet and men of fame, men of renown, amazing, amazing people that would all disappear very shortly. So let's just summarize what we've looked at then in this this couple of groups. We've got these two things, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman that, that develop here. So first of all. We had them, the offering of the fruit of the ground versus the offering of the firstling of the flock. So this is the comparison between the two of these. Now, I'll make these available afterwards. Um, well, not quite sure how, but we'll, we'll make these, uh, these screens available afterwards for you. But this is the parallels as we go through. Um, so on the, the, the left-hand side, we've got the in the red the, the seed of the serpent, It brings what it wants. It brings of the earth, earthy, right? The other brings what the Lord requires, honoring the principle of flesh being put to death, the firstlings of the flock, uh, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. John tells us that the works of Cain were evil, um, whereas his brothers were righteous in 1 John 3, verses 11 to 12. Um, His sacrifice, that is Abel's, was more excellent Whereas Cain's was a self-made religion, voluntary humility, he was a liar, he spoke of his own, and there was no truth in him. He was a murderer, as we read in Genesis and John and in the latter of John, whereas uh, Abel, his righteous blood, was shed. Cain goes the way of Cain. It becomes his own way, a kind of a signature, where the others are going the way of Yahweh. All flesh had corrupted his way, which shows you there's the way of Cain and there is the way of Yahweh that Noah and his little family keep. The seed of the serpent uh, called their cities after themselves and they have great education of men. They're, they're the top of the class in all these things. Whereas the seed of the woman named themselves after God rather than trying to make a name for themselves. And their education is the education of God. Now as we push forward we have the daughters of men versus the sons of God and we have their descendants they are of the wicked one and as the Lord says to the Pharisees you are of your father the devil right they were the seed of the serpent this is the way their minds operate they are mighty men of name the seed of the serpent whereas the woman's seed are just men upright and righteous. They are wicked and great in their wickedness. Every imagination of their heart is evil continually in in chapter 6 of Genesis and verse 5. And that's why really we cannot be involved in the entertainment industry of this world because that's all it is. Evil continually. Whereas we have the seed of the woman who do according to all that God commanded. And that's their thing. They are righteous. They do what the Lord asks Well, the earth becomes full of violence from the seed of the woman, or the seed of the serpent. Whereas Noah and Enoch, as it tells us in Jude, were preachers of righteousness. The seed of the serpent corrupts God's way, but the seed of the woman walks with God. So when you look at that as it develops out, that becomes a pattern that we're going to see develop all the way through the scriptures. These were the kinds of things that were going to take place. Well, of course, the flood comes and the flood goes. So this is kind of like, as we move on from there, we now have the post-flood society. Brother Thomas called this the anti deluvian society, right? So this is the after, uh, or anti deluvian was the pre-flood. This is the post-flood, the post-Diluvian society. Um, And these are basically a very similar pattern. We have here the kingdom of men that begins to develop. We'll look at it first. So if we just turn over the page, the Genesis chapter 8, this is after the flood. Of course, we know that the situation with, with Ham and how he uncovers his father's na- nakedness and all of that entails, and uh, his descendants, we come into Genesis chapter 8, and we find there that um, we come to verse 10, I don't think it's Genesis 8 verse 10, I think it's Genesis chapter... 10 verse 10 I believe that should be or 10 verse 8 there you go there's my dyslexia kicking in Genesis chapter 10 and verse 8 um, Cush begat Nimrod and he began to be a mighty one in the earth right so this is the same word that's used in Genesis 6 verse 4 so he becomes a mighty one in the earth and verse 9 where he was a mighty hunter and the word before there is that word Panim, right it's it's in the faces of Yahweh so it's against the face of Yahweh he's a mighty hunter wherefore it said even as Nimrod the mighty hunter before or against the faces of Yahweh that's the idea that's expressed in those Hebrews words there so what does he do well verse 10 the beginning of his kingdom is Babel so here's Nimrod and he is this mighty hunter Uh, Chapter 10, verse 8, that should read. And the beginning of his kingdom is Babel. And, of course, if we just turn over to chapter 11, this is, of course, um, when in verse uh, 1, the whole earth was of one language and one speech. So when we come out of the ark, we have one language, one speech, one society. But it doesn't take long before this all splits up. And, of course, we read there in chapter 11, verse 2, those who... Notice the language very similar to the the, the university cities. Um, they said one to another, go to let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone, slime they had for mortar. And they said, go to let us build us a city and a tower whose top will reach to heaven. And let us make us a name, lest we be scattered upon the face of the whole earth. And Yahweh came down to see the city, which the, the children and the tower, which the men, children of men, ha, had built. So notice here again the children of men, right? So here we have the seed of the serpent side of this, who are looking to make them a city and a tower. And a name they want to reach up to heaven, so this is the same thing that we had back in Genesis you know, desire to make one wise, you'll be like the Elohim. It's this idea of reaching out, trying to be like or above God, a quality with God, and they want to make themselves a name, and that's what they're all about, right? So, we have in verse 19 or verse 9, then, um, therefore. Is the city called Babel uh, because um, Yahweh did confound the languages he splits them up now and spreads them all over the place so this is the beginning of the kingdom of Nimrod and it is called Babel now of course he also builds Nineveh and Asher and some other of these cities that will figure later on in the, the city uh, in, the, in the names of, of those great um, cities that will be coming against uh, the, the people of Israel. So here we have the one side of the society as opposed to the other side of the society. So that's the post-flood society kingdom of men, seed of the serpent. Um, whereas we have now the other side, which is the seed of the woman. And so we have in Genesis chapter 12, um, we're told here Yahweh said to Abraham, or Abraham, verse 1, get thee, and notice the difference here, out of thy country, from thy kindred, from thy father's house, to a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation. It is not Abraham trying to make of himself something great. God says, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless thee, and I will make thy name great. And thou shalt be a blessing, and I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. Right, so here we see Abraham who's told to get out of his country, his kindred from his father's house. And God would make his name great. And you can see the difference between these two completely. One is trying to make their own name great. The other, God is making his name great. And so we see here as we look at this chapter 12, what does Abraham do? Does he build a city? Well, no, in verse seven, we find there that Yahweh appeared to Abraham, said unto thy seed will I give this land, And he builded an altar unto Yahweh. So he built an altar to Yahweh instead of a city. And not only that, but he founds a society based on education. What kind of education? Come over to Genesis chapter 18, and this is just before the angels go to destroy Sodom. Um, Genesis eighteen verse eighteen, we read there, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation um, and and, uh, all nations of the earth will call him blessed or be blessed to him, sorry. Um, I know him that he will command his children and his household after him. And notice the phrasing here, they shall keep the way of Yahweh to do justice and judgment that Yahweh may bring upon Abraham all that he had spoken to him of. So here's a man who is keeping God's way he's not doing it like Cain his way he's not making his own way in the world as some people like to call it what his focus is is to do what God wants him to do remember Genesis all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth Well, Abraham here is teaching his children God's way a very very different kind of outcome um, that we have. And so when we look at him here was he part of the society was he a, a great head of of society as it was well Hebrews 11 again commenting as it did on Enoch and on Noah Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 13 tells us this These all died in faith not having received the promises but having seen them afar off were persuaded of them and embraced that they were, and, and con- them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth, for they say that such thing dec- uh, say, they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they mean mindful of the country they come out of, they might have had opportunity to, to, to return. But now they desire a better country, that is an heavenly, wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. So you see the complete difference here. God has prepared a city God has prepared a people and he will do this and what they do is they confess their strangers and pilgrims they don't really care about this world they're not interested in what it has to offer what they're interested in is what does God have to offer and so we won't look at this one but we have in Genesis 25 verse 23 two manner of people separating out of uh, the womb of of Rebekah and um, or Rachel, sorry. Or Rebecca, sorry. and um, one is called Jacob, whose name is changed to Israel, which is the ruler with God. Um, and remember, uh, back to Genesis, men called themselves by the name of Yahweh. So just to summarize this, as we, we kind of pull these things to, together, we have it, the the seed of the woman, Nimrod, the mighty hunter, or sorry the seed of the serpent versus Abraham, the father of the faithful. We have the beginning of the kingdom is Babel, whereas uh, Abraham is promised that kings will come out of thee, and this is going to be God's doing. The children of men build a tower, and and it's it's a city called Babel. Whereas Abraham is told to get out of his country, he builds an altar, and we're told he has no continuing city in chapter thirteen and verse fourteen. Um, the seed of the serpent they strive to make themselves a name, whereas the seed of the woman God is going to make Abraham's name great. Ishmael is born after the flesh Isaac is born after the spirit we didn't look at that, but that comes up in Galatians chapter 4 verse 23 and these two ways or two peoples are separated out of the bowels of of Jacob and his wife um, or of Isaac and his wife Esau the red. Uh, earthly, hairy, cunning hunter. And Jacob, the upright man who has integrity, Uh, his word, his name means innocent or whole or complete, or the word upright means. um, The one despises his birthright, the other holds on for the blessing. And Esau, God says, I've hated him, but Jacob have I loved. The one is immoral and unholy, whereas the other has his name changed to be Israel, the ruler with God. And God says he is not ashamed to to be called his God. So that's kind of the process that we've gone through. And again, I hope you didn't scribble that too fast. We will make this available to you. So this is the grand theme that we've been looking at. It's, it's these two seeds, right? The seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, right? So there was the serpent, his seed, his head that is going to be bruised eventually, and he will bruise the seed of the woman's um, heel. And then on the flip side, we have the, the seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15, uh, her seed, it's going to bruise the serpent's head, and he's going to have that temporary wound of the seed of the serpent and this is two ways of thinking it's two minds that will follow through in our studies together as we continue this through today and tomorrow romans chapter 8 those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh this is reading the esv for to the mind of the flesh is death but the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile or enmity as the av puts it to god for it does not submit to god's law indeed it cannot versus the spirit in Romans chapter 8. Those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. They set their mind on the spirit. They are spiritually minded and that brings life and peace. And of course that leads to two ways that we read about as we looked at these development in in Jude. We have those who went the way of Cain. And rather than this we have the other way which we didn't look at but we will shortly. John 14 verse 6 where Jesus says... I am the way, the truth the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. So you can see this this theme developing out. And then, of course, we have the two cities, the tale of two cities that runs through the Bible. We have Rome, Revelation chapter 16, verse 19, that great city, uh, which is called Great Babylon. We saw the beginning of it back in Genesis. And we have the new Jerusalem, the other great city, the holy Jerusalem that descends out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. And tied to these, there are two citizenships, which we will also develop as we look at these further on. The one we read is the world. Um, Ephesians chapter 2 we walked in times past according to the course of this world, um, a, among whom we have our conversation or our lifestyle in in the past, the lust of our flesh fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were the, by nature the children of wrath, even as others people just in the world. So that's the the one citizenship or society and then the other of course, is in Ephesians 2 verse 19, which again we'll look at in a future class, you're no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. And so that's going to lead, as we follow this through, to two imprints. There is going to be the mark of the beast, which we talked about at the very beginning in Revelation 13 and, and verse 16, and the seal of God which is what we looked at in our reading as we we followed this through. So these are the themes that they're going to develop out through our classes. And God willing, as we we go through these, we can see that they're all rooted right the way back in Genesis, that division that takes place, that two ways, two thinking, two citizenships, two cities. And as they run all the way through the scriptures, um, we're going to hopefully, God willing, follow that through the, the different classes and look at these themes that we've just kind of outlined at the end, and that will form the basis of what we're going to consider together. So we will uh, stop there and uh, I'll hand the class back over to our presider.